Today's reading is John 15:1 through 17. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servant, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When you woke up this morning with your extra hour of sleep, I thought there would be more people here just be bubbling with life because you got an extra hour of sleep. Unless you have little kids, they all wake up at the same time, right? That's why you're looking at me like, there was no extra hour of sleep. I'm really angry about this. But when you woke up this morning, did you think to yourself, how can I be a good person today? How can I be a good person today? If you think about that question, it sounds a little bit like Mr. Rogers. Um, I mean, that sounds like something, I, I got exposed to Mr. Rogers a lot with my kids, but it sounds like something he would say, because it's a slightly uncommon, perhaps even odd question to ask yourself. I mean, honestly, at any point last week, did you question your level of goodness? I didn't. I haven't recently reflected on my own goodness. I don't quantify it in any given week, and I certainly don't fret over it. I mean, when my kids were little, I did have some fears and anxiety about being a good parent. 
Uh, and that was, I, as I look back on it, I think that was largely prompted by the number of books and, you know, all the, all the gurus who were out there telling you how to have successful, brilliant, talented children, you know, so that when others judge you by your children, they will, you will be a success. But I realized that was my own issue right there, and, and that, that was creating some of the fears and anxiety, plus being in a church where if you're a public figure and they look at your kids, I actually had a Sunday school teacher who came to me one time and told me about one of my kids who remained anonymous, uh, that they were misbehaving in the Sunday school class, and this teacher was just shocked. I said, why are you surprised? I said, my kids are normal. They need Jesus. And, and the lady looked at me like I had offended her. So it's only the beginning of many ex- experiences like that. It's like, well, you know, my kids need Jesus. But I think perhaps there was some anxiety about whether or not I was going to be judged for my children as well. But, but I don't lie awake at night with anxiety over whether I'm a good person. Maybe a good parent, but certainly not a good person. I mean, truthfully, who wants to be good? Who really aspires to that in our culture today? Anybody that you've ever met who says, that's my driving goal in life is to be a good person. I mean, I think most people would welcome virtues like happiness and love and patience and peace, things like that. But goodness? I'm not so sure about that one. Why is that? Well, as I thought about it, I thought, well, perhaps it's due to previous associations that we've had in life. For example, when I was in school, the one thing that I wanted to avoid, like the plague, is being labeled the teacher's pet, a brown noser, or as I went into high school, I didn't want to be the one who was known to destroy the curve, you know, the test curve on the grading. Although I did it many times, but I didn't let anybody know that. I didn't want to be known as that person. I didn't want to be known as a goody two-shoes. And what's interesting is even after school that that kind of continued. Some of my associations with goodness continued as I went into the work world and I had kind of a mixed message I was given. One of the, <clears throat> one of the summer jobs that I had in college uh, was um, bucking rivets on trim panels of commercial buses for the Grumman Flexible Company. If you're wondering, what did I just say? I put an image up there. I, that back quarter panel, that trim panel with the rivets that go over the top, the wheel well, most commercial buses, when you're sitting in traffic, notice commercial buses these days, they don't have rivets on them, okay? They went to a completely rivetless bus, but when I was working for the Grumman Flexible Company, they had rivets there. So I was the guy on the inside, and this guy's on the outside, and he's firing these rivets through in a, in a certain pattern, and I have these certain bars that I have to know exactly what angle to get at to hit the rivet on the back to buck it. That's called bucking a rivet. And you, it smashes the head down and seals the, the metal against the frame. Wasn't that interesting today? You guys think pastors, the only thing we ever do is, you know, the only thing we're good for is the Bible. I can buck rivets. <laughs> and I was fast and I was good. But one of the things that, that I learned very quickly was when the buzzer sounded, it was break time. And that meant you dropped your tool. You did not finish what you were doing. And I had instilled within me this work ethic from my family that you went the extra mile, you finished what you began, you did things with excellence. But the message I got at Grumman Flexible was not here. Not here. Not if you're a United Auto Worker. No offense to any United Auto Workers out there. I was a UAW member too. And what they were basically saying to me and the Grumman Flexible was, don't try to be good. Goodness will get you nowhere in this place. 
And so perhaps you too have an uncomfortable relationship with goodness. I mean, truthfully, goodness seems to have a bit of a branding problem in our culture today. It's not something that people readily aspire to in life, which sets us up on a collision course with God's agenda. And what do I mean by that? When you come to a text like Galatians 5.22, it says that the fruit of the Spirit is goodness. So if you have a Bible, turn to Galatians 5. There's one sitting underneath your seat if you'd like to grab one. It's always good to actually feel a text, not just pull it up on your phone. But if that's all you have, that's fine. But to look at the text itself, it's page 975 on the Blue Bibles. And when, when the text says that the fruit of the Spirit is goodness, it's saying that this is something that God wants to do in your life and mine. This is something that God wants to do in your life and mine. Paul is saying, here's what God is committed to doing in the lives of every follower of Jesus. All right? So it's not a special class of people, but it's all followers of Jesus. And it happens by means of the Spirit who comes to be in you. When you receive the life of Jesus, when you, you receive the Spirit, when you receive the life of Jesus, as you transfer your trust from yourself to Jesus. That's how you receive the life of Jesus. If you've never transferred your trust from yourself, I'm not talking about believing certain facts about Jesus. I didn't say that. I'm talking about conversion, as it talks about in the Bible, is shifting from a life that is marked by trusting yourself to turning and trusting Jesus. And when you do that, then you receive the life of Jesus. You share in that. And with that comes the Spirit who then indwells you as well. So you share in the resurrection life of Jesus and the Spirit begins this transforming work of causing us to be like Jesus and reflecting the character of God. Which makes sense when you look at Jesus' life because as you read the Gospels, he was someone who reflected the character of God. And you see that character described in Galatians 5, what's called the fruit of the Spirit, that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, these things that we've been looking at over the weeks. And so the Spirit's transforming work is to make us into a people who look like Jesus. And one aspect of that is to be people who manifest goodness. And that's what it says in Galatians 5.22. So if you're new to us this morning, if you're, new, if you're new to grace, we're in a conversation around the theme, transformed into his likeness and transformed into his image. And one of the things that we've been looking at is, is these questions of, of what is it that God wants to do and and why does he want to do it? And how does he want to do it? And one of the things that we've been asking is, is this question, what does God want for us? And that is a total reframing question that most of us are used to thinking about. Because when most people come to Christianity or to religion, they always have the deity who is demanding something from them. But when you come to the Bible, you realize very quickly that God wants to do something for us. He doesn't want something from us. He wants to transform us into the likeness of Jesus. Because to be like Jesus is to be more fully human. It's to be more fully alive. It's not to be more spiritual. And that's what God wants for us. And why does he want it? Because he loves us. He truly loves us. And this transformation that God wants to do in our lives flows out of his unfathomable love for us. It's something that once you begin to expose yourself to the love of God, you realize you can never exhaust the richness of the love of God. 
And how does he do it? How does he make us into people who are marked by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, etc.? He tells us in this text that it's through the Spirit. It's the Spirit who transforms us by being in us. And he's the one who produces this fruit. And so we've been looking at this fruit in Galatians 5. So now that you have your text open and you're looking at Galatians 5, again, maybe you're familiar with this list, but look at it again because it's easy to come to this list and to hear it as a how-to problem to solve. How can I be a better person? How can I try harder to measure up to God's standards? How can I try to be a good person? And I think that many people come to a text like this, and this is what they read. This is how they kind of interpret this text. And they come away feeling like, well, there's no hope for me. But the fruit of the Spirit is not a how-to problem. It's a why-to challenge. Why does God want to do this, is the question. And as I've been thinking about this text and spending time in it, as I've been trying to, to you know, immerse myself to prepare these, these, these messages, one of the things that I have been struck by is that Paul, who's the writer of this, I think he's trying to enlarge his readers' theological imaginations. And what do I mean by that? Well, listen to two texts that talk specifically about our imagination, our theological imagination. Theological meaning how we perceive God. Ephesians 3.20, written by Paul, he says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, there's that word, according to his power that is at work within us. Now let me do it again. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. Paul is someone who understood that we need our theological imaginations enlarged to the greatness of God and what he wants to do. In 1 Corinthians 2.9, he writes, However, as it is written, listen to these words, What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. He's talking there about how we perceive God and what we expect him to do. He's talking about our theological imaginations. And I think that as Paul gives us these fruit of the Spirit here in Galatians 5, he's trying to enlarge our theological imaginations of what God wants to do in our lives and in people's lives around us in the world. Stanley Harawas is a um, professor who was at Duke Divinity School for many, many years. He recently retired, and they had a retirement ceremony for him at Duke, and I listened to the, to, the, to the speeches that were given in his honor. And in the course of, of one of the speeches, they quoted a very famous line of Stanley Hauerwas, in which he said, We live in an age where secular people don't find Christianity interesting enough to reject. I'll say it again. We live in an age where secular people don't find Christianity interesting enough to reject. That one has a long fuse on it. And what's the alternative? What, what he went on to explain and talk about this, but I, the alternative that he was suggesting is that we make it interesting enough that secular people 
would realize what they are rejecting. See, Christianity in, in today's world is easy to ignore. It's just not compelling. It's not interesting enough to reject. So how do we do that? Well, I think that we need to have our theological imaginations fueled by the greatness of God's desires for humanity. And I think one of the big steps is to realize that, that what this whole plan that begins in Genesis and goes to Revelation is not meant to be just internalized and privatized and personalized. This plan that God unveils in, his, in the text of Scripture is for the world. And he calls a people for the sake of the world, not simply for the sake of their own spiritual well-being. And that requires that we have to have our, our, our imaginations fueled by the greatness of who God is and what he's wanting to do. Because when you look at the world, it does not look like that's possible. Right? But if it's only about you, then no problem. You've got your entire lifetime to possibly wrestle with that. But if this thing is about God wanting to unveil his greatness and his kingdom and his power and what he wants to do in the world, and we look at the world in all of its brokenness, it's easy to pull back and to say, I'm not so sure about this business. And that's what it takes. We have to have our theological imaginations enlarged and infused and inflamed with what God wants to do. And I think that people today are longing for faith that can hold the attention of their hearts and their lives. You talk to your friends who are not Christians and they don't necessarily have anything against Christianity because there's largely nothing to be against anymore. Except the caricature of how we stand on certain issues, certain social and moral issues. But you give them something compelling and you watch, they will lean in. They're longing for something that's compelling, that's beautiful, that makes sense of life. And so my question to you and to us is, do you and I have a moral imagination that's infused with the vision of God's, what God wants to do, of God's transforming power and desire, what he wants to do in your life and in my life and people's lives all around us? Or have we settled for low expectations? So these fruit of the Spirit, I submit to you, are there to open our eyes to the transformative power of God's grace. But I also think that God wants to do this because God is good. Because God is good. And we would expect goodness to be in this list because God himself is good. In Israel's songs, in Psalm 136, verse 1, we find this echo of goodness. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. When you move forward and you see Jesus encountering people and he, there's this one moment where he encounters this ruler and the ruler talks to him about this issue of goodness and Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And in saying that, what he's basically doing is making a veiled claim as well for his own uh, being linked to God. But he says, no one is good except God alone. And then in 2 Peter 1.3, Peter, who was a, one of the inner three uh, uh, friends of Jesus, he writes these words. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. So Peter knew that God's goodness was, was at the root of our being called into this life that we share with Jesus. So scripture has much more to say about God being good. 
So what does Paul have in mind when he uses this word and he talks about the fruit of the Spirit being goodness and goodness being something that God wants to do in our life? Well, the Greek word that is used here, and I typically don't pull out Greek on anybody, and this is as much as you're going to get, but the word that is used here is only used four times in the New Testament. Outside the New Testament, it's only used in ecclesiastical writing, meaning writings of the church. So outside of that, you don't get any real hints from perhaps if you were to go read first century documents. It's not there. So it seems to be something that was coined by these writers. So you don't get a lot of help if you're just looking for the Greek word to be used in other places, see how it's used, and possibly then import that uh, to, to this text here. But I think there's possibly some help for us closer to home. In Ephesians 5, or, excuse me, Galatians 5.22, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Kindness, goodness. Kindness, goodness. Do you notice that connection there? Paul puts kindness before he does goodness. As I reflected on that this week, I thought, well, maybe there's something to that word order. Uh, Daniel Long spoke about kindness last week, and, and he talked about kindness being, in part, responding to the needs of others. And I'd suggest to you that goodness describes the character that motivates that kindness. So if, good, if kindness is about our hands, then goodness is about our hearts. So I think that Paul is doing a little play on the connection here between kindness and goodness. But I wonder if there's something there to the word order as well. That he puts kindness before goodness. That he puts our actions before the character. And it's true that most of us would say, well, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's our character that affects our, our actions in life. But perhaps Paul is also saying something else, that the reverse is also true. That our choices affect our character. Our choices shape our character. The choices that you and I make in turn shape our character. In other words, you and I can live into the person that we want to become. You and I can live into the person that we want to become by the choices that we make each day. As I thought about that, I thought, well, that's one of the reasons. That's, I rarely talk about parenting unless someone asks me a direct question about parenting, but I'm going to do a parenting moment here, something we've learned about parenting. One of the things that we did with our kids was we purposely served with our children, or rather, they served with us. And we purposely did that. We included them in serving with us in a whole variety of ways as they were growing up because we believe that their actions even when they grumbled and complained, that eventually that repetition and that posture, as long as we didn't cave in, that it would shape their character. The actions would shape the character. And one of the things that I think that that helped do for, for our children, at least, is at least what we were attempting to do was to show them that the world did not revolve around them and Christianity did not revolve around them. It was about something bigger, and it was basically a posture of giving yourself away, because that's what Jesus did. And so I believe that as we, as we try, to, as we try to, to give them these choices to make, and as we walked into those with them, that I, we believe that over time it could help 
shape their character. And I believe, as I look at my four children, that it did. And I'm very thankful. But I think the same thing is true for us. I think that's what Paul is getting at here. One of um, my favorite movies is the 2006 film, Children of Men. How many have seen that film? How many want to admit that you've seen that film? All right. It's really, it's weird. You're up here, it's like, oh, are we allowed to watch movies here? Yeah, you're allowed to watch movies. That's a great movie if you've never seen it. It's based on a book, and it follows the book very closely. It's, written by, it's based on a book written by the late and very prolific uh, British mystery writer, P.D. James. That's P.D. James sitting there. And she was once asked in an interview, and I've never forgotten this interview when I heard it the first time. It was way back in, uh, I think, the 1990s. She was asked this question. Why are evil characters in literature more interesting than the good ones? Why are evil characters in literature more interesting than the good ones? In the course of her uh, answer, she said this, and I quote, I suppose that wickedness reveals itself often in action. Goodness also does, but is on a quieter plane. Good people very often reveal their goodness through the whole of the quiet revelation of their character in the ordinary events of life. I mean, if a good person is being courageous, he's probably being courageous and facing rather ordinary troubles, if you like, sick children, a sick wife, an uncongenial job. Goodness is very seldom dramatic, I think. And it's much more easy to write about drama, end of quote. I was struck by her observation that goodness is very seldom dramatic. It's quiet, it's steady, it's ordinary. It's not focused on uh, on yourself, it's not focused on promoting yourself, but it's focused on others. And so I leave you with this final question, it's this, how does God do his transformative work in us? If it's not about trying harder to be a a good person, to try to live a virtuous or or a moral life, then how does God transform us into people who manifest goodness in our lives? I want to explain with this image. If you're familiar with Pink Floyd, you'll know where that image is from. It's a great album, by the way. Um, Paul starts the fruit of the Spirit with love because God is love. 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love. And when we allow God to love us, now listen to this carefully, when we allow God to love us, over the course of time, we become transformed by God's love so that we become like the one who loves us. And this explains the prism. The love of God is directed at our lives. That's the white light going in. And our primary responsibility as followers of Jesus is to surrender to that love. To trust it. To allow it to have its way in our lives. And as we surrender to that transforming power of God's love, that love is then refracted through our lives as the fruit of the Spirit. Love Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. And so the question, the questions I leave you with, 
Can I have those final two questions? There we go. Will you let God love you? Will you surrender afresh to his love? And that's my invitation to you today. And what I'd like to do is, as part of our worship, is to have a season of prayer. We've been emphasizing prayer throughout this series. The Spirit's activity, the presence of God, Jesus' desire to take and to transform us. And what I want to do in this particular response of prayer is to invite you to respond to those two questions and to do it in a public way by simply joining me down front and then... We're not going to embarrass anyone, but we're going to pray. I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite Alex to pray because we've been praying in twos in our prayer time, uh, if you notice, during, on Sundays. And, and it'll be a prayer for simply this, that you'll experience God's love afresh, that as you surrender to his love afresh, God will bring his a sense of his presence and his love and his embrace and maybe break down some of those walls that maybe some of us have. So it's nothing that you have to do. It's just a matter of receiving. So if you'd like to receive something today, I'm going to invite you to come up here and join me up here. And Beth is going to sing over us um, as we're coming forward. She's going to sing over us. And then uh, Alex and I will pray. So if you want to do that, you can just move and join me down here. All right? Beth is going to sing.